Hey, Boardroom Podcast listeners, I've got a new partner, RideList app. Anyone who knows me knows I've got a lot of gear, and RideList is a new app for the iPhone. Find gear, sell gear. Free to download, free to use. Share, buy, sell, RideList. Download the app now. Here's a little anecdote, which I find interesting, from one of Stu Kenson's co-workers, and I quote, When Jason Stevenson from JS Surfboards in Australia approached me to manage their USA production, they asked me for a list of potential lead shapers. Stu Kenson was at the top of my list. But JS Australia thought Stu was just a retro shaper because of the attention around Joel Tudor's boards, which Stu, of course, had been making for years. So they didn't listen to me, and they chose their own guy. That didn't turn out so good. Stu was finally brought on to be the lead shaper about two years into the program. Stu flew to Australia to work with Jason and learn the intricacies of how Jason Stevenson wanted his boards finished. And of course, Stu was already well established and could easily have thought, okay, that's nice and all that, but this is how I do it, which I think most shapers with his experience would have done. But that's not Stu. The goal was to fine-tune boards off of the machine. But, as Stu already knew, a board off the machine can still be screwed up, and the goal of finishing JSs was for them to be JSs. And I'll never forget Stu explaining to me that the only way to match a board off a machine that is someone else's design is to match the tools and the exact steps that the original shaper took. Without that, little details are lost. So Stu took on JS's techniques to finish the JS designs the way Jason wanted them to be finished. Stu, as a journeyman shaper, left his ego in the truck, so to speak, and made the boards that were spot on for JS. And Stu never claimed it or used it to help market or promote his own brand. And for the years I worked at JS here in the United States, I received many complimentary emails and phone calls about the boards Stu was working on. End quote. Stu Kenson, devoted family man, loyal friend, bass fishing fanatic, incredible surfer and tube rider, and an underrated craftsman. The Boardroom Podcast. Let us begin. So, Stu Kenson, welcome to the show, the Boardroom Podcast. It's good to see you. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. Did you um, get in the water this morning? No, but I gave it uh, a good shot. We had a uh, little bump, cross swell, and it was a little lumpy and not quite as good as it's been down there. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just leave it at that, down there. Uh, It's just a little beach break that occasionally gets good. Yeah. Yeah. well, let's start, Stu. Um, people probably um, – I'm going to do an intro before this starts, so I'll let people kind of know who you are and what you're all about. Um, let's start with this. Where, What's your background as far as um, surfing and stuff? Like what was your first board? Where did you start surfing? I'm going to suggest that I think that you're from Orange County. That's correct. I uh, grew, uh, grew up in Mission Viejo. Surf Salt Creek and San Clemente Beach Breaks. 
the first board that I owned was uh, David Nueva, little uh, seven-something round pin, probably 1969, summer 69. How old were you in 1969? I was pretty young. Um, I think I was 12. All right. So, uh, so you're 12 year old and you're Orange County, you're surfing at David Nueva. Yeah. It took me all summer to, uh, earn enough money cutting lawns, um, to get that board. And, uh, my parents were worried that I was going to go out in the ocean and get eaten by a shark or drown. Yeah. Which neither of those happened. Right. And that board lasted about three weeks before it, the strap on my friend's, uh, their parents' car broke, and it came flying off, um, cutting back through San Juan, going home, and was destroyed. Wow. So. What happened then? That must have been a shocker. That was traumatic. I bet. <laughs> so. What would you do? Did you uh, hit well, up the parents for some dough? Or? No, 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 no. That was never going to be the case. That wasn't so happening. I had a friend of mine who had a 9-8 a Greek Maui model that he didn't like. It weighed about 30 pounds. Had a... Uh, Lexan plastic fin in it and uh great big pintail. And I bought that for about 20 bucks. Wow. And I rode that thing forever. Loved it. Cool. So a little bit of a downgrade. You had to get sort of a hand me down now and it's bigger and heavier, but, uh, you enjoyed it. That's cool. So, um, what were some of the beaches? You said Salt Creek. Anything else up in that area? Uh, we surfed Salt Creek, um, and that was before Avco came and knocked down the hillsides and put the hotel up and all the other homes and stuff. So it was a private beach uh, during that time. Did you see Steve Brom down there at all? Uh, Brom was one of the other guys that were a little bit older than me. Was he like an enforcer, Brom? Or? Not so much. Nice um, DK. Uh, Richard Kinzer was one of the guys, and there were some other guys at the point, you know, that kind of owned it yeah. and um, learned a lot of uh, important life's lessons about really? hierarchies. Did they send you in? Did they, did, they ha- did they kind of, like, guide you along as an elder would to a Grom? I would say indirectly. Right. Um, they kind of just shuffled us off to uh, middles on the inside there. And if we if we were, you know, pushy enough to try to go surf the point on a good day— um, we'd get shuffled out of there and God help us if we wanted to go surf gravels on a good day. Really? Then the big boys would come uh, get no. you out. Okay. Interesting. I bring that up because I reached out to some friends of yours and they said that, that you, um, sort of have a reputation, not in a bad way, but as a, an elder statesman that kind of shows the younger crew kind of what's up, so to speak. Um, I would say that's probably correct. Yeah. You know, and um, that's important. I I think it is. I mean, it was important for me uh, to know, you know, etiquette is what it comes down to. Right. All right. Um, So you're you're a teenager. You're surfing Salt Creek. You're cutting your chops. You're you're getting better. People don't know Stu's a goofy foot. Um, uh, In fact, you know, my first recollection, I've told you this before, is I just remember seeing you at Black's and I want to say it was around. I think it was around 81 or 82 and I was probably 14 or 15 years old. And I just remember seeing you, I think on a twin fin, it might even have been a Carl Hayward twin fin, just ripping, just owning it, just speed. I remember going, who is that guy? That like you were heads above everyone else as far as performance and stuff like that. I guess this leads me to what was the board you were riding? Do you recall those early days at blacks? Uh, absolutely. I moved to San Diego in 78. Um, I had a girlfriend going to school at, at UCSD, and I uh, came down to see her. And, of course, you know, we, we um, 
got to finally see what a lot of real surf was. San Diego was just giant. I mean, you have the cliffs, you got local beach breaks, all in North County with nobody here. You could go surf anytime you wanted by yourself if you wanted to. And I kind of settled in at Black's. And um, that was, you know, of course, amazing times. It was, it was, uh, was before Surfline. It was before social media and cell phones. So you really had to know what was going on. Um, yeah. Great, great place, as you know. Yeah. Um, to surf. So, so tell me, you had this girlfriend. Did you, um, did you know that Blacks was down there below UCSD? I mean, you obviously did. You're yeah, I'd surfer. surfed it. I'd surfed it younger, yeah. and some of my mentors, um, two guys in particular, uh, a guy named Ron Lane, who's uh, lived in San Diego since about '78. Uh, he and I worked together at Infinity Surfboards, and he definitely was a mentor and kind of continues to be today. Uh, he and his family own Fastlane Sailing Center, and his son Jared Lane and Hayden are key players with Salty Crew. Oh, cool. Which is doing really well. Oh, that's great. And then another very good friend of mine, lifelong friend, has been Max McDonald. Right. So I lived with Max and Ron for a while, and I was the Grom. Right. And they would regularly wake me up before the crack of dawn and say, let's go. Cool. You know, and which would be, we're going, you know, it's pouring rain, winter day, we're going to Blacks, or we're going to go surf horseshoe, to which I was terrified at the time. Yeah. But again, you, you know, you learn from those above you. Yeah. But um, now, great place. So, so you have this girlfriend, you already know Blacks is kind of the deal and you're following her down here and you, I guess you lived with her on campus or on, yeah, in an yeah, apartment I, or something? I kind of, I, mean, I kind of spent some time at UCSD and no, I didn't take any classes there, <laughs> but I kind of was entrenched for about, uh, I probably was there for about four months before I got an apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, what about Dave Carson? Did Dave Carson work at Infinity? Dave He's ran part of that crew, right? He ran Infinity uh, Mission Beach. Yeah, and I knew of him a bit surfing contests, surfing WSA, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and how did you do as a kid surfing in contests? I know you did pretty well. And um, I know you're a competitive guy. Yeah, I did all right. You know, yeah. um, we had um, again some of my mentors. The biggest one was Midget Smith, and he was you know kind of the. The, one of the leaders of the WSA in the men's division, really, yeah. really good surfer, yeah. um, great shaper, and he he uh, kind of mentored me in in a in a kind of hard to explain way, you know, it was kind of kick you around and and uh, my first like uh, an older brother, type you know, of thing? definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. I I worked at a natural design surf shop, fixing dings and putting in leash plugs and sweeping the floors and that kind of thing. And then, uh, kind of picked up from there, you know, learned a lot, learned a lot about surfboards. I always had good surfboards. And, and so was midget one of your first shaping influences or, or, and if he wasn't maybe expand on who were some of the first guys that influenced you as far as shaping the first guys that I really, um, well, to start off with the first board I built was when I was about 13, we had a, we had a mentor that was a lifeguard and would take us surfing. Me and a couple of my friends, and he said, "You guys want to you want to build your own board?" And we we're like, "Sure!" So he took us up to Hannafin Surf Shop up in Newport Beach, and for about fifteen bucks, you could get a blank glass resin, you know, everything that you need. And it was cool, you know, single fin days, of course. This but is like seventy three or seventy four. This is like seventy, yeah, probably seventy three, seventy two, seventy three. Yeah. And showed us how to lay up a fin panel and showed us how to do a cut lap and how to use pigments. And, you know, of course, in my mind, the board came out great, but it was probably pretty <laughs> atrocious. 
but that's kind of where it started and i got i got kind of the bug and and um watched a lot of really good shapers through the years and that's kind of what led me you know down the road that i took and what about midget smith was he a part of your learning curve or? absolutely yeah. yeah midget midget um shaped my boards out of his little tiny garage in san Clemente at his apartment and did all kinds of different stuff for us we went through you know as he began his shaping career he got hooked up with a lot of guys from hawaii um, did a lot of perf- i would say real high performance boards uh, for local guys in town little swallowtails and stings and that kind of thing so um, that's what I wrote at the time. I always wanted to try to, to stay on the cutting edge, yeah. whether my surfing was, was there or not. Yeah, so we have this lifeguard that, that took you up to Hannafin and sort of sh- showed you the way a little bit, especially as a younger kid. And then Midget kind of guided you along, right? And yeah. what, um, you mentioned the first board. When, when do you feel like you started to get comfortable where you're like, you know what, I'm a shaper, like where you considered yourself a surfboard shaper, even not necessarily a business guy, but a guy that I now make my own boards? Because I, as I recall, Blacks, I don't think you were riding your own boards. No. I think you, were no, you I on wasn't. Carl Hayward's? No, I was riding um, at the time when I first moved here, I was riding Tom Eberle's Lightning Bolts. Uh-huh, yeah. And I continued that on. And the twin fin you saw me on was probably Eberle. Yeah. Those, those were just phenomenal. Yeah, they were. So I got boards from him, and I got boards from Gary McNabb at Nectar, and those yeah. were really good. Um, and I surfed a lot with Rusty Preisendorfer. Right. Um, and I didn't ride his boards at the time. All my friends did. Yeah. Um, and I didn't. And and as far as when I really started to take things a little more seriously, that would have been in the early 80s. And, yeah. um, you know, I was doing typical surfer stuff, working in a restaurant, you know, waiting tables and bartending. And... Uh, Rusty finally said, why don't you get a board, you know? And I said, well, you know, I like kind of some different stuff. So I finally tried a couple from him, and they were really good. And it was right in that transition from, you know, kind of single fins into twin fins into the thrusters. Yeah. And I got a couple tri-fins from him that worked great. I got some twin fins that worked really well. And he also got me a job at Canyon Surfboards because mm. um, I wanted to get back into board building, Yeah. which was low man on totem pole, which is a polisher. Right. So I learned from a really good guy there, Carl Eberhardt. He's, I think, one of the best polishers ever. Yeah. And we do six or eight, you know, boards a day. And John Derwood was the owner, and, you know, he was he was an awesome human being. Yeah. Really, really good guy. Yeah. So this um, Carl, the polisher that sort of helped you out a little bit, you mentioned you think he was the great one of the greatest ever. What's become of him and – why do you think he was such a great polisher? And maybe expand on that a little bit. Well, there at the time, I think there were a lot of guys in this in, in the surfboard building industry that that were very good and specialized in in techniques. You had laminators, and you had sanders, and you had airbrushers. Um, you had you know color guys with laminations that were really really good. And I think the the level of glassing and board building that I saw in San Diego compared to to Orange County, L.A., was a whole different level. You know, That's came, fascinating. Is that because of GNS? Like the level – like the GNS was sort of like the it factory, right? And then yeah. you had, um, I don't know, where Canyon was being done, probably through Diamond or what you what eventually became Diamond. Maybe elaborate on well, that. Well, Canyon was in um, – is in Rose Canyon off of Santa Fe and um, just a little shop. There were about four or five guys that worked there. And, and that's where Rusty was getting his. That's boards. where Rusty was. And this is where Durwood owned, and yeah. and Carl was the 
I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just trying to keep my focus here. We had a cast of characters there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I learned from from a guy that had been polishing for a long time, and polishing was kind of the standard of surfboards still back then. Right. You know, when when we got into a sanded finish, it really was a sanded finish. It was compared to today, it was atrocious. It was it was uh, taking hundred grit out of the trash can <laughs> and kind of giving it some flat scratches, and that's that's what we rode. I'm fascinated on why you believe that San Diego, the board building itself, is is was at least and perhaps still is of a higher quality. And I mentioned, you know, is it because of the GNS factory? Like, what do you think it is? Is Bill Castor, like, I'm just wondering, why do you think it was better here than it was up north? I think, um, just guessing right now, but yeah. I think it was kind of a smaller market. Yeah. Um, Cause there definitely were a lot less people and surfers here. Yeah. And I think that you were held to a higher quality, um, consideration than anything i'd seen before yeah not to not to downplay you know big labels out of orange county in la because there were a lot of them and they were very successful but it was the the overall tuning of the boards yeah um san diego is the first place i saw a really hard edge on a tail yeah you know a beaded resin glass edge yeah and what was that was it what do you remember what kind of board that was yeah it was a seabolt oh interesting steve seabolt yep which was a gns right so that came out of the gns factory yeah yeah so when I saw when I saw that, and and you're right in that, GNS was massive. And when I when I came here, it's like every good surfer, good you know high performance surfer, in the late '70s and early '80s, they are they were all GNS guys. Yeah, you like know? Brandon Hayes and oh yeah, just phenomenal. If you if you drew Brandon Hayes in your heat and it was under three feet, you were dead. Yeah, you know dead. he would just annihilate you. He could beat you doing running jumps from the beach. <laughs> Who are some other guys when you first moved here that you kind of went, wow, this guy's really good? I'm, I imagine Rusty's probably one of them. Rusty was very good. Um, there were numerous guys that, that I surfed with at Blacks yeah. that were phenomenal surfers. And then, of course, the Reefs. Um, Salt Creek's known, you know, was known at one time for being a nice hollow little beach break, and we thought that was that was the end all. And then I when I got to see a lot of the reef breaks in La Jolla, um, at their finest, the first time I saw Big Rock scared the hell out of me. Yeah. I'm like, you got to be kidding. Yeah. You know, and those standouts, of course, were Rex Hoffman, Marshall Mirman, uh, kneeboard guys. And then yeah. you had, you know, Roper, who was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, you know, Jeff Toomey, uh, Craig Eck. Yeah. You know, really, really good surfers. Peter Lockfelt. Yeah. And um, those were guys that I, you know, looked up to. And when I finally started surfing there, um, got a pretty good reputation you know with with most of them we got along real well and and earned my way in did you ever get in any scrapes with any of these guys or was it just um this guy Stu surfs pretty good we'd better just let him in no back fold. then it was you still had to pay your dues yeah you know so it's like it was um, rex was funny because he pushed me into waves that were unmakeable <laughs> and you had to go yeah so i did so i left some blood on the reef there yeah but yeah as far as you know as far as that type of thing, no. I, I knew my place, and I was was still what I considered, you know, an out-of-town guy, even though I grew up in Southern California. But it was different back then than it is now. Yeah, it was way more regional. And even boards were regional, right? Like, if you showed up with a board from Orange County down in La Jolla, it was just – you're kind of like – you're just pegged an outsider. That's a big mistake. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to do that. I kind of miss that. I mean – I don't know why, but it is kind of neat that there used to be sort of a regional thing. And you could seaboard, like 
Like if you saw a Hobie or whatever, you'd want to check it out. You'd be like, oh, this is these are the guys from – or a Midget Smith's a great example. Mm-hmm. If you saw a Midget Smith down here, you'd want to look at it and kind of check it out and see what they're riding up there. And there was – it was kind of a neat little cross-pollination that would take place. Yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. and it, at the time, you know, again, we, we kind of touched on GNS. GNS had everybody that was good. You know, rode those, and then you had all the caster guys. Yeah, you know, and those were predominantly reef guys, and they were all really good surfers, but a different style. You know, they yeah. they were riding heavier waves, you know, than than normal, and you wouldn't see them really too much down at two foot shores. Right, mm-hmm. and then I'd say you know, sunset surfboards was another huge you know influence as far as good great surfboards in San Diego. Yeah, you know, as kids we'd come down to surf um, Del Mar, Blacks, that type of thing. And you go into their their shop in in Encinitas, and it was phenomenal. Yeah, you know, plus the factory was tied to it downstairs. Right. Yeah, which is now Moonlight. Yeah. Right. But Peter and, and um, Gary and those guys were working for Ed Wright at Sunset, and there were some great shapers. In fact, Tim Bissell shaped at Sunset. Yeah. And of course, Ned McMahon and uh, the Willis brothers, and Ken Bradshaw did a little stint there for a year or so, and quite a few other guys. Um, they had this guy, Bill Shrosby. Oh, yeah. You might have heard of him. <laughs> Bill Shrosby, legend, coming down from the South Bay, uh, originally starting up there with, you know, Jacobs and all that, and then eventually finding his way down here. Yeah, Shroz, incredible shaper. Still is, and a great guy. So. Yeah, phenomenal. Well, tell me about – so let's move forward a little bit. You're you're here in San Diego. It's 1988. You're working um, – I guess you're still working at um, at Canyon – or I don't know yeah, what's, what's was, your next step. Like at what point did you go, Hey, I'm ready to pick up the planer and get, we get busy here. And well, who was that guy? Like what was the turning point? That guy's name is rusty. Yeah. That's what I thought. You know, yeah. and he, um, he and I were very, very close during those days and we surfed a lot together. And he said, you ever want to shape your own board? And I, you know, I told him that I'd done, you know, a few boards in the past when I was, when I was young. So we ended up, you know, he's okay. Here's, here's the deal. You can go ahead and do one. And I shaped one up. Um, which again was probably a propeller, but there was another local friend of mine, a guy named Chris Menzi that you may remember yeah, really, really good. Absolutely. Surfer. So Chris, he's like, I want to ride that thing. So he took it out and ripped on it. And he's like, this is insane. So of course yeah. I think he, you know, he could have rode the door off your car, Yeah. but that kind of got me going and I continued to, um, get good boards from people. And I think for me, that was probably the smartest thing I could have done. Yeah. So I got married in 1984, moved to South Bay, um, just inland of Imperial Beach, and that kind of became home break. Right. Um, still is today. Yeah. And so I was still riding Rusty's, and I was shaping a few of my own. And then the local really good shaper in IB is a guy named David Craig. Right. And he's, in my opinion, one of the best shapers ever. Yeah. So he actually was, was huge in between him and Rusty. Rusty, I learned most of my stuff because I watched him shape all my boards. Right. And he was really efficient and really fast. Yeah. And then Dave, you know, taught me a lot. And I kind of pieced together all the things that I'd picked up from other shapers um, along the lines and put all that together. And that became my style for shaping. So was it ever like a situation where you're like, okay, Rusty, I'd like to spend two hours learning how to shape a surfboard? Or was it more like you just absorbed what you absorbed because you were lucky enough to be in the shaping room with him? And it was a little scary to maybe ask him, hey, should I do this or should I do that? Like maybe get into the rabbit hole of, of 
who was the guy that said, Stu, you're doing it right, or Stu, you're doing it wrong? Um, I would say myself because yeah. I wrote all my own boards, and it got to the point where I wasn't super happy with riding other people's boards, and I continued on making mine. And the first ones I made were, were pretty crude. They were, you know, thrusters, yeah. but they worked really good. Yeah. So I just kind of built on from that. And then um, I opened a shop for a few years down in IB, which got killed with the water pollution problems. Mm-hmm. So I continued on after that shaping and building surfboards. And so I'm, I would say, honestly, the thing that helped the most is I'm my biggest critic. Right. And I've always been known for doing different surfboards and taking them to the extreme, but being honest enough to say, well, there's something here, but it's not quite right. And then playing around with it to get it dialed in. Yeah. And that's pretty much what's, what's brought me to it. Definitely. Um, no one ever showed me and stopped and said, this is the way you do things. Right. Which again, I think for myself selfishly is the best way to go. Right. So I just kind of was quiet and watched stuff and, and I had a good eye and I could, I could feel up boards and kind of figure out what's going on. And, and what about Dave Craig? I mean, how, what was his role with you? I mean, did, was it just another situation where you just stood in the shaping bay and watched him work and absorbed it? Or did he, like, how did he influence you? Um, well, Dave made great surfboards. Yeah. You know, it's like when I, when prior to me make f- going full on and making my own boards, Dave was doing my boards. Right. And I'd come up periodically and surf black surf or scripts or something. And Rusty would see him, you know, and, and Rusty, um, he knows a good surfboard when he sees one and he'd check out my Craig's, especially the channel bottoms. And he's like, these are unreal. Yeah. You know, and kind of wanted to like hang on to them. So a lot of it is like almost, um, uh, absorption. I mean, you've got so many great boards under your arms in that you've got Rusty's and you've got Dave Craig's. I mean, you're feeling and riding great surfboards. So it's, I don't want to say easy, but it's certainly uh, a bigger boost for you to go into a shaping bay looking at these boards, feeling these boards, having, having ridden these boards and be able to then try to kind of adapt. Yeah, I would, I would say you're absolutely right. The other, the other thing that helped was, was polishing and then sanding and building my own boards. Yeah. You know, glassing all my own boards and, and really getting involved in all that. Uh, when Rusty went on his own um, under the RDOT label, I was still working at Canyon, but I had a little glass up on the back of my house. So I glassed a lot of team boards for him um, over the first summer that I really got into doing my own stuff. Right. So which were crazy hours. I'd go and pick up, you know, half dozen blanks from him at five in the afternoon. And then I'd take him to the sander at 6 a.m. the next day. Was that weird? Was that was did that feel like did to the guys at Canyon? Did they wasn't there kind of a falling out between Rusty and and the Canyon guys? And um, not so much because yeah. he you know he was on a different path, um, and he wanted to do his own thing, and and um, I was kind of you know thinking of the same thing. Yeah. So I went I went retail and doing boards for myself and my friends, and then I went full on back into surfboards. What's your business model now? I mean, now you, you've been established for 40 years. You're, you're um, frankly, you know, in my opinion, you're a legendary shaper um, and you're a great surfer. Uh, you sort of have all of it, you know. Um, but, so I'm wondering, what is your business model? Like if somebody wanted to get a Stu Kenson, I know I know how to get a Stu Kenson board. <laughs> but if somebody wanted to get a Stu Kenson surfboard, is there a website? How many boards do you do a week? What does the Stu Kenson business look like? The best way I've, I've been through all kinds of stuff. I've done numerous websites and they're a pain in the butt and they cost you a lot of money and they're static. Yeah. Um, the best vehicle for me is Instagram. Yeah. 
So I'm, I'm under SK under slash shapes. Yeah. And I post stuff up and people see it and they order I've it. done that. I've <laughs> seen your boards. And I went, holy shit. I need one of these and I'll call you and you'll make me a board. So that's probably the, I mean, that's pretty obvious. Everybody's kind of on the Instagram plan, which makes tons of sense. It's a great way to do it. I guess I'm wondering how many boards a week do you do? Like, do you have a number that you have to hit? Are you stressing over it? Or you're just like, you know what? When orders come in, I do the orders and it is what it is. Um, I try not to stress about it. Yeah. You know, uh, I try to stick to, uh, like a four day a week work week. Yeah. And, um, now that I am getting older, I've had some health issues. So doctor's orders go out and, and exercise and play. (laughs) How many boards a week is a good week for you? Uh, it depends. It changes week to week, but probably anywhere from about a dozen on up. And I do, I have my brand. I have boards. I do still with Joel Tudor surfboards. I do Joel's personals, um, a couple other little projects here and there, some art projects. So I'm pretty busy. Oh, good. That's you know, good. Okay. Busier now than I've been in probably five, six years. Well, um, it's funny. I was in the water the other day, yesterday. I was surfing and a guy paddled up and he goes, yeah, I just, I was just polishing Joel's boards for Hawaii. Stu made them. And so, um, we started talking about the design and stuff. Maybe you can talk to me a little bit about Joel Tudor's, um, big wave pipeline boards that you made for him. Cause they sound unique. This year we did a lot of changes and I've been building Joel's personals for going on 20, 21, 22 years. Yeah. Um, Predominantly, we started off with Hawaii boards, and then I do I don't do his classic longboards. Those are Hank Byzak and you know a couple other guys, Wayne Rich, of course. Yeah. Um, and I specialize, I'd say, in his more performance style boards and pipe boards. Yeah. So um, we had a pretty long history doing a lot of boards. He has he has some boards from you know that are 16, 18 years old that he still rides over there. He has them stashed under his house. Yeah. So this group of boards, we did about a dozen. And he's finally embracing a little more nose rocker in his boards. Okay. Interesting. Um, but still. Is that thick. like twisting his arm or something? He, I let him come up with it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All the good ideas are his. Yeah. Right. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. 
Terms and conditions apply. So it's it's um, it's really fun building boards with him um, because he wants to ride different equipment, and it's not they're not copies of old single fins at all. Yeah, they're they're very um, tuned to to his surfing. Yeah, uh, and other guys are you know riding his boards occasionally and ordering boards here and there. Yeah. Um, but these generally we change some rocker in them and he, he likes that fuller nose template. Yes. And Kinda a lot like of the Makaha thickness. style. Yeah. Yeah. Very, um, very like reminiscent of that. Yeah. yeah. But just fully modern and bottoms and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. We don't, uh, we don't really do any, you know, concave type of stuff. Um, uh, but I run rocker in them heavier than probably most anybody that builds single fins just cause mm-hmm. it fits better. Yeah. Um, we'll run for stuff, on, you know, for smaller boards. We'll run double barrel concaves through the fin area. We've yeah. done that forever. Yeah. Just kind of gives them a looser little ball bearing feel. Right. But they're all single fins. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that he and Roper were kind of having some discourse about fin placement on these single fins. <laughs> and I guess it got quite interesting, but um, I look forward to interviewing Joe and finding out about that. That should be good. Yeah. Um. I, you know, a few years ago, I, I'm not sure if you posted a twin fin or you posted something and I'm like, God, I got to get that. So I reached out to you and I said, you know what? I want you to make me a rocket fish. And, and you and I got involved in, in a rocket fish and eventually it turned into a twinser, but I'm not sure the exact chronology of this because I'm a little scattered, but maybe give our listeners a little insight into um, your experience with the twinser. I know you've been playing around with it for a long time. When I first saw the Twinser, it was uh, there was uh, an article in print about Will Jobson, and he, you know that's his total invention. Uh, the next one I saw was video of Martin Potter riding one, and I'm like, that's the ticket right there. Yeah, because I always love twin fins, but you'd get one twin fin out of about a dozen that was like money. It was yeah. the one, and all the other ones had weird quirks. Yeah, And the early Twinsers did, too, because we were still experimenting with rockers and foils and where to put the fins. And how to cant the fin, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's the most important part. And if, if back then it was all glass in and glass on fins. And if the fin guy made a mistake and didn't put your fins in correctly, the board would track. Yeah. You know, or, or just be a slug. And when, what year are we talking about here? We're this would be like- 88, I yeah. think. So I was just beginning to kind of compete um we had the, you know the as chris aaron would call it the ferrari longboard tour right and um so <laughs> i embraced that i liked it because i was a short boarder and i could have a board that i could nose ride and turn yeah so i still have the first windsor longboard that i made it's on the side of my house is it magic it was it was it's all brown now yeah and i'm never going to throw it away yeah can you replicate it i could close i could but they're better now yeah you know, right. thousands and thousands and thousands of longboards. Right. Um, when I worked for Rusty's, I developed their longboard program for them. That yeah. would have been in the mid-90s. Yeah. And I didn't really want to be known as a longboard guy. Yeah. Because I still rode my shortboards all the time. So that that and a couple of other opportunities came up, and that's why I left there. Right. You know, one of them was to work with Joel. Right. So they they definitely worked. And, of course, we moved on, and we've done all kinds of different things since then. Yeah. Um, and I was known besides Joel's boards for doing performance shortboards. Yeah. And kind of got away from the whole longboard thing. I wanted to ride different stuff. Yeah. Um, but the twins are, you know, after. Did well, you meet Will Jobson? Did you no, I never met him. I never yeah. met him. Um, Rusty made a couple. Um, he had one that he made himself. It was like a 7 8. It was a big, 
big tank. Yeah. And I rode it. Um, there was a PSAA contest in IB, and I rode it down there, um, and it was magic. So yeah. that one really lit me up. Um, and then later years on, you know, when we when we discussed making you a twin fin, you know, rocket fish, that one really took off. Yeah. So um, I'd been playing with different things, and I thought this is a twinser is gonna gonna be the deal. Yeah. And it just what the twinser does, as far as my opinion is, is it cleans up water flow. Um, it makes the board easier to ride. It doesn't have that stop and go feel that a twin fin can have. Yeah. Um, constant motion. You can go straight on it and trim if you want, but it, it allows you to do all kinds of different things. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I've always just used the word squirt to describe it. In other words, when, when I'm riding a twin fin down at the bottom and I have to make a section, I sometimes don't always get there, but it feels like when I get a good twinser and I've had bad ones, when I get a good twinser, it allows me to squ- – it gives me a squirt. It gives me an extra projection, and I'm not sure if that's just BS that I made up or that – but that's the feeling I get when I ride a good one. I would – you know, and I get asked all the time because I make a whole bunch of them now. Yeah. Um, I get asked by people what, what it does, and I would say one way, uh, an offshoot to explain it is think about a sailboat that has a mainsail and it has a jib. Yeah. Um, the mainsail is the power, and the jib – enables you to turn more efficiently. Yeah. And I think in my opinion that's what's going on essentially with a with a twinser. Yeah. You're feeding water with that small canard fin onto the foiled side of the fin. It's definitely smoother but it's incredibly fast. You're not dragging dragging a center fin through the water the other the whole time either. Right. And you're putting channels off the tail, at least you were on me on mine. Is that to get some grab, to get some so you're not quite as drifty? Uh, you're not getting any drift with the ones I'm building now at all with the channels. Right. Um, my, my latest one that I'm all fired up on, um, is kind of a modified MR tail template. It's a wing swallow with four channels that are angled, uh, tuned, you know, they're turned, tuned in just like the fins are. So they kind of feed off of that. And then I actually put, um, a spiral V kind of a hook wing. Oh, cool. On it. And that conjunction adds more V in between the fins, so it goes from rail to rail easier. But you get the drive on the right kind of wave with that hook wing. Yeah. And if you, there's a section you need to make, put it on an edge and you're gone. How much hook in the wing? Like They're pretty aggressive. Pronounced? I'd say oh. probably three sixteenths of an inch. Wow. So they're just like right, just like a tooth almost. They're bitey. <clears throat> wow. And um, – it sounds like a board I need to order. <laughs> you got well, me all, of course. You got me all excited here. You can never have too many, right? <laughs> oh, Lordy. Well, speaking of channels, um, you know, people may not know, but for a long time you worked with Al Burn at Burning Spear Surfboards. Uh, maybe tell me a little bit about that. How did you meet Al? How did that come about? Um, what was that all about? Well, I met Al through um, Phil Ward. And Phil approached me at um, – Action Sports, which was Phil Ward from Australia. Yeah, yeah. So Phil said, "This is my friend AB, and he's he's heard about you, and you know, you know, I was already making channels. I'd been making them for a while. Yeah. And he said he wants to get his line of boards going here again. So we met and decided to do it up. So he he flew over, and prior to him coming over, he he sent me a board. Yeah. And you know, kind of said, "Go ahead and shape one." So I did it up. And it was, you know, it was, it was perfect. It came out great. He's all excited. And he started asking me questions about it. And it's really the, my first 
long interaction with him because he shaped out of my shop up in Mira Mesa for a while. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, how did you, how did you do the template? I said, well, I drew a template off the other one. And he's like, nah, that's not the way you do it. And that really took me down a road, down a rabbit hole, basically yeah. on his theory on channel bottoms. And I mean, everybody and their brother does channels these days, especially it's pretty interesting, but yeah. he had so much to back up his theories. Yeah. Um, which unbeknownst to me, he was a pilot in the Air Force and he'd done all this other stuff. He wanted to be an astronaut and never got the opportunity. Wow. That's um, fascinating. So I learned the, the whys as to things that you do for a channel bottom, the bottom contours, things that a lot of people don't really look at. Right. And that makes a difference because, the, you know, in the past, six channels had been relegated to, oh, you can only ride them in really perfect, you know, reef waves. If you take it to Indonesia, you can ride it there, you know, or... The feeling was that if you were on a wave that had some bump or something, bump they, they or chatter, didn't quite go as good. yeah, they'd catch, and that's yeah. that's not necessarily true. Yeah. So, to get back to that little thing, I said, "Well, I used a template with that board." He goes, "No, you don't need a template." And he proceeded to hand shape one, which had a full plan shape on it, but he laid out the channels before the tail was finished. It was going to end up being a, a double wing swallowtail, and he laid the channels in, and he goes. The wings come off the channels, not the opposite way. Right. He goes, and then it all started to make perfect sense to me. So he drew everything and didn't even draw it in. He blocked it in by hand. Wow. Which was insane. And it was, it was perfect. Yeah. He's like, what about your swallowtail? I go, I'll just grab a French curve off the wall. He goes, nah, I'll just draw it on there. Right. Insane. So, and, and many, many listeners know that sadly he passed away in an incident in Bali. So you, you've really been able to, um, uh, sort of lucky in the sense that you got to go into his mind and understand his philosophy behind the channel bottom. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. No doubt there's some it. other guys in Australia um, and you can probably, hopefully you can help me out with their names, but um, there's a couple other guys that were real influential. Well, of course he's from New Zealand. He's not an Australian, but um, from down under that, um, that sort of were obvious channel bottom guys in the, in the late seventies. Of course, uh, Cole Smith, but but there's there's a deeper little wet web there that I'm I'm forgetting the guys' names. But there's um, I think one of them is Phil Phil something. Yeah, there's uh, and of course Myers is it? Not Myers. Um, it'll come to me about yeah. three in the morning. But he's right. the guy that specializes. He's got he had I think free flight right at one time. Yes, exactly. And he does a lot of ten channels. Radical. And they work super good. Gnarly. You know, if you can wrap your head around that and, and get them glassed without your glassers hating you. Right. Because um, they are tedious. Yeah. But um, I know that Nick Carroll just posted up a brand new one that he just got that looked insane. Oh, cool. Very cool. So there, um, there's ex- the acceptance, I would say, to channel bottoms, especially looking, you know, looking they're sexy, huh? through stuff. Well, yeah, they're, they're little Ferraris. Yeah. You know, and they're very finely tuned. Yeah. Um, but they work great, and and half of what I write is channel bottoms. And, and so Al really kind of changed your perspective on it. So you're putting the channels into the board, and then wherever the channel flares off of, that's where your wing will be. That's where your wings are. Right. And you know we had that we had that shape off, and I was trying to help out Wayne a little bit, Wayne Rich. We should back up a little bit and tell the listeners. So at one of the Sacred Crafts or the boardroom shows, we presented the competitors with a block of EPS foam. And I said, look, you guys are going to replicate a, an Alburn six channel, a deep six, a classic Alburn. And um, 
I'll let you take it from there. That was um, that was an interesting and super fun challenge. I mean, it was it was. Uh, How big was that chunk of foam? That, that chunk of with? foam was eight feet long, and it was two feet across, and I think it was about eight in, eighteen inches thick. And I, and I was asking you to make a board that was going to be like two and a half inches. It was thick. a full on race car. Yeah. So I tried um, just because I am competitive, and I'm not going to be till my dying breath. But I thought a different way is how can I make this more efficient? How can I do this and get it done in, in the allotted time? So my first thought was, how about a chainsaw? So I went and bought a, a Harbor Freight chainsaw for about 35 bucks, and I shaped a board out of it. Yeah. And it went pretty well, but it didn't save me enough time. Yeah. So I thought, all right, I just got to put my head down, and I'll, I'll use my planer. Yeah. So I think I went through two planers doing that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I melted the so bearings you're what you're telling me is that you practiced for this event. Of course I did. <laughs> okay. I enough. think you'll find that, um, well, you probably have already discovered this, doing these challenges that that um, it's it's like, I don't know, you could you could equate it to NASCAR racing if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Yeah. No, so you until be, the rules show up. You wouldn't up, be the first one that hasn't. But to the uh, you know the the story of doing that when I showed up um, in Costa Mesa to shape that board was really funny because I'd been in Florida when they had the first one the first chunk of foam challenge yeah and I watched everybody shape those boards yeah and learned a lot. Well, the listeners should know that you were there for the tribute to Rich Price, the um, Icons of Foam shaping tribute to Rich Price, which you won. You were the winner of that you're one of the champions of the icons of foam so let's not skip over that but in addition we had a chunk of foam challenge totally separate competition which you speak of now so i i showed up in costa mesa with my with my rolling bag of tricks and i was after the, watching those after guys watching in Orlando. All this, yeah and i ran right into my my good buddy scott who said what do you got in the bag and Me? i yeah Oh, did I, uh, we're about please, eight, we're about eight in the morning. I forgot. So there was nothing in the written rules to say that I couldn't do all these things. And um, my friend Stu Sharp, you know, had he had different colored Sharpies and he had marks on his arms, you know, because we weren't allowed to have any measuring devices. Right. So that was the first thing you're like, you got Sharpies in here. You can't use these. Those are out. Right. So those got tossed out of the bag on the floor. <laughs> and no curves and no measuring devices of any kind. So um, I didn't stumble on the one that Ricky Carroll used, which I really would have used if I broke off teeth on my saw. Uh, that one was really good. Dirty that was dog. <laughs> you guys are dirty dogs. <laughs> but yeah. that, uh, that challenge, I, I, when, I, when I saw that board, I, I, woke, I stayed at my mom's house, and I woke up about 3 in the morning, and I was like, what is he going to pull on us this time? And I'm going to go, I bet you it's a channel bottom. Yeah. And, of course, it was, which is a, a horrible thing to have to make out of out of EPS foam, let alone a giant block. Yeah. So challenging would be would be an understatement. No, it was probably, of all the shaping competitions I've done, and we've done a bunch of them, I would suggest to you that that one was the most difficult. And, frankly, you're one of only a few that even completed the challenge. Quite a few guys just couldn't get through it. And yeah, it was, it was brutal. I, in some ways, I want to apologize for making you go through <laughs> that, but it was good fun, too. And it really showed what an incredible craftsman you are. I mean, it was – I still have that board. It's it's in my storage. And I want to ride it, but I'm afraid to wax <laughs> it. I think it's going to break. Yeah, it might hold up. 
well, a little bit. I had it glass light. Oh. Yeah. But congratulations. So, yeah. So, you, you won this shape off in this Al Burn six channel, and um, it's just incredible. Just a quick break to tell you about our new partner, which I'm excited about. At the beginning of the show, I told you about the Ride List app that I've downloaded onto my iPhone. It's a cool new way to find, share, and sell surf, snow, and specialty sports gear for those of us that ride. Go to the App Store, download Ride List. You can post up your gear, you can shop, you can plan a meet up with somebody who has gear that you're interested in. It's that simple. Peer-to-peer, user-to-user, rider-to-rider, marketplace. Find what you want, when you want it. And you can filter by sport, how much you want to spend, and your location. Ride list created by riders for riders. It's free to use, free to download, quick and easy. Download the Ride List app. You'll be glad you did. I know I am. The Ride List app or check out ridelistapp.com. Yeah, it was it was fun, and and again, you know, you'd you mentioned, were mentioning Wayne Wayne Rich. Yeah, because Wayne was in the challenge right, with me, and I right. was trying to. I'm like, don't put the channels in. Let let you know get to the point, get get to where you can finish it. And Wayne's meticulous about everything that he does. You know, just an awesome, awesome guy, great, fantastic shaper, um, and he wants it perfect. So yeah. he needed about eight hours to make it perfect, and it yeah. would have been. Yeah. I think he got blood. He was the first guy to have blood on the foam. Hilbers had it too. <clears throat> Hilbers had yeah. blood. Yeah. Yeah. I think he gave out about a pint. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We had red cross there. <clears throat> well, <laughs> I learned my lesson. I, I think those chunk of foam challenge days are over, but we'll see. Um, I spoke recently on this podcast about, I don't know, three, four months ago, maybe with Dennis Jarvis and Dennis brought up this concept of, um, putting tariffs on imported surfboards that come in here that 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 we should level the playing field that it's not fair these boards that are coming from wherever from asia from mexico who knows anybody anywhere but here they should there should be some sort of duty or tariff put on these boards i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that um i would like to see a level playing field i think fair is fair and and um there have been people that have shaped here and America's open to everybody, pretty much. But when I when I see that I can't go somewhere else in shape, um, I have a personal issue with that. Where where can't you go in shape? Well, if, if I wanted to go shape in Brazil, mm-hmm. I couldn't go shape in Brazil. Why is that? What would what um, would you need? You need work permits that oh, you right. can't get. Right. Um, so don't want to offend anybody over no. that, but that's the truth. Yeah, no, the truth's good. I'm, um, I like to learn these things. That's that's all there is to it. Now, there are there are certain people that make surfboards that get really, really vocal and bitter about this, and I'm not going to be one of them. Yeah. Um, a very good friend of mine, Dan Mann, does a lot of work for Firewire. Yeah. Um, and I just they're they're the they're the main one. Right. So, would I like to see the 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 I w- I'd like to see things fair. I think that's the best way to put it. I'm not out. Do you think out. that the, if they put a, a, a duty on imported boards, that that would just affect me, the end consumer? They would just pass that on to me. Potentially. Um, but again, and and my you know my market, to be brutally honest, is I don't deal with surf shops. I'm direct. Yeah. I make custom surfboards. I'm not here to put 100 boards in a store. And if you're trying to do that um, as a surfboard uh, builder these days you're gonna you're gonna lose unless yeah. you have a vast amount of money which is what they have they've been capitalized yeah. if you want to compete against those guys good luck exactly because 
they're getting their boards put in most of these shops, as are other big labels, yeah. um, basically on consignment. Yeah. Pay as you go. Yeah. And if, if that's what you have to do, um, you're going to lose. Yeah. There's, it, you know, one thing, I, a couple things I want to say is that I think it's interesting that, and, and I think that we should, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We should um, be grateful to Firewire for putting the price point of a retail surfboard at about 750 sometimes $800. And there's other boards out there like Javier's XTR boards that will retail for up to $900, even $1,000 if you get all the bells and whistles. And I think it's I think those guys deserve some kudos for getting the price point to that place cuz you and I know that a surfboard's worth more than $500. That you know, and that's basically, you know, if I'm going to the garage guy and I'm getting a board, I'm going to get it for about 450 bucks. No, you're absolutely right. Um, I, what I, what I would say about, about Firewire, because they're the, they're the big, you know, the elephant in the corner of the room. Yeah. They have been really the first large, um, company through the years of, of building surfboards, um, in my memory since the fifties that have been successful. Yeah. So, um, and they build a good product. Yeah. Um, they're different types and levels of surfboards that are built. Um, you have, you have boards that are more mass marketed and there's a, there's a market for that. And you have guys that want custom surfboards and they want to have a one-on-one relationship with their shaper. And that's what I offer. Yeah. You know, you come into my shop, we make an appointment. Um, if you have time, which they don't always, um, I'll get your board going. I'll template it. We'll talk about things. Yeah. Um, two to three weeks later, you get your board. Yeah. Unless you want, you know, blue tint with metal flake, gloss polished channel bottom, and that takes months. <laughs> that's that's what I want. And oh, by the way, is my board done yet? Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Slater, do you consider him a surfboard designer? Yes, very much. Yeah. Yeah, Kelly has, I think, put in um, mo- more effort than most, yeah. if not all. Uh, back, you know, back when we kind of looked at performance surfing developing in the, in the late seventies. Um, very common for professional surfers to make their own boards. Yeah. Very common, very uncommon these days. Yeah. You know, that kind well, of went out with MR and Simon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gone. It's not it's only uncommon, gone. it just doesn't exist. I'm trying to think here. Um, yeah, it just doesn't exist on the WCT. There's just no time for it. What I, um, the, the one little thing on my soapbox is I work for a great company out of Australia, mm-hmm. um, JS Surfboards. Right. And great so, experience. Yeah. I mean, as far as working for somebody else, that was the best of the best. Jason Stevenson. Yes. Yeah. And I think that they still build the best high-performance surfboards on the planet. Really? Bar none. What about Stu Kenson? Stu Kenson does pretty good, too. <laughs> now, I will also say that the boards are probably a little bit um, out of most people's daily realm to ride you mean we're not good enough to ride them exactly yeah so the in in saying that um i think it's a little bit tough when you see the the level of surfing and surfing's popular now it's more popular than it's ever been yeah so people go into shops and they buy these boards that probably aren't quite right for them and they can they're spending a fair amount of money which is fine yeah um, any activity, sporting activity, you're going to do that these days. But they're not really on the right equipment, and they're not able to catch waves and maybe not have the experience that they could have um, if they maybe were on something different. Yeah. But back to Kelly. 
But Kel so here's the difference with Kelly. Kelly has been involved for years on his own equipment. Yeah. Um, and he was with Merrick, which didn't hurt him a bit. Right. So I think probably in his formative years, he rode the best equipment and some of the most extreme equipment, too. Yeah. And if, if you look back when he came on the Pro Tour, he made boards. He and Al made those boards that were little, tiny, thin potato chips that everybody copied. They were 17 and a half inches wide and two inches thick and, and super rockered out, and no one could ride them. Yeah. Kelly rode them pretty well. Yeah. So I would say that he's very aware of his equipment. Yeah. Um, and he works very closely with, with uh, Daniel Thompson and Dan Mann. Yeah. Here in California, and and neither of those guys, you know, are slouches. They know what they're doing. Absolutely. So I would say he potentially he could design his own board, and probably does. Yeah, yeah. I would suggest to you that um, probably when he meets with one of the two Dans, he's like, "Here's what I'm thinking." Yeah. You know? And they're they're almost translating his thought into the foam. Very much so. And they're free thinkers, and I think that's super important. They're not they're not putting out a cookie cutter, you know, five ten trifin. Far if from it. Firewire came to you and said, "Hey, Stu, we got a plan for you. We we want to do a Stu Kenson model. We're going to punch out a lot of these boards. You're going to make some money." Um, where I'm at now, I wouldn't really be interested. Yeah, you know, if it was twenty years ago, honestly, probably. Yeah. You know, if I was 40 years old as opposed to 60, that might be a different story. Right. Um, Dan Mann, an interesting guy, he, he, I asked him about you a little bit, and he said, um, he said that you made him a board one time, start to finish, with the fin marks and signed in 17 minutes. That's correct. <laughs> Is that the fastest you've ever made a, a surfboard? Yeah. And why so fast? Um, well, Dan was, was, I, I pretty much showed him the ropes of shaping. He was really my first guy that he came into my room at diamond and he wanted to shape and, and, um, he learned my way, which was, um, poor guy, a little bit of rusty <laughs> in me, you know, uh -huh. rusty was famous for going, for going through his, his shapers boards with a pencil. And if he saw something in the rack, he didn't like. He'd put a pencil line through it and then write a note a lot of times on the board just in the ask, foam. I was going to ask you if it was on the card. So, no, it was on the foam. Right. So if you got that, that was probably a, a problem. Right. Um, I did I did my boards through them, so I never really had that experience. Right. But I did that with Dan, and he would come in. I'd have him come shape in my room in the morning, and I'd show up and go, okay, beat it. i go, let me see what you did, and I'd pencil line his board. And I think that those lessons, he really sucked up and, and got involved in it. And then he bought a glass shop, which was Northwind Glassing, right. and developed his craft. Um, so he was um, – and I, I really like the way he does things because he thinks out of the box. Yeah. His boards are different than anybody else's out there. Yeah, they and are. And they work really well. Yeah. But um, that's you know pretty much what, what we did. Right. But yeah, that board, the I, I built one for him in 17 minutes, and it was just kind of a, I didn't even know how to explain it. You know, I just said, I can do one in 20 minutes <laughs> or something, you know, and, and I did. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Clark foam closure. Um, obviously, in 2005, I think it was, Clark abruptly closed shop, and there was... No foam available, more or less, for, for shapers. What do you think one of the good things, what are some of the good things that happened from the Clark foam closure? 
Uh, I would say quite a bit um, using alternative methods, uh, materials. Uh, at that time, I was just starting to play with epoxies again, and I got in touch with Greg Lohr, and he told me just enough to get myself in trouble. You know, <laughs> yeah. He said, okay, well, this is where you get a block of foam from. Where were you, you know? getting EPS foam? Um, I got it from this place up in Chino. I don't even remember the name of it. Yeah. Were um, you afraid that Grubby would find out? Or no, you, you weren't big enough that it mattered. Well, or? no, I wasn't the for sure. I wasn't well, the, big but enough. the driver might see it or something like. No, I wasn't. I wasn't ever worried about it. You yeah. know, when I was a kid um, growing up, I grew up right down the street from Clark. Yeah, and we could go in there and buy seconds and rejects right off the floor. Yeah, you know, and they'd show us all the stuff that's going on. Um, so that's pretty cool. It was insane. Yeah, you know, it was it was awesome. Yeah. So that was never an issue. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really, none of us knew anything. You know, it was Black Monday. That was, that was the name it was given. Yeah. And it, it was almost like a, like a, a you know, a giant uh, power outage yeah. throughout the industry. It's like phones started ringing. Did you hear this? Did you hear that? And it's like, yeah, Grubby had enough. And I mean, if you look now where Clark Foam used to be, um, and I know that area really well, my, my family still lives up there. I think they just wanted him out. Yeah. He was surrounded by Nellie Gale Ranch and multi-million dollar homes. And it was almost like some lawyer at the Irvine Land Company just said, you know what? We've got this last little piece here. Who's over there and how do we leverage him? Yeah. If you look at it now, you get on the toll road and drive up to L.A., there's there's high-rise condos right where it used to be. Hmm. So off he the did. 50, off the 73? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Right where it was, was uh, Crower Cams was there and Clark Foam. Yeah. So I what think, exit? Do you remember what exit it was? Uh, it would have been on Crown Valley Parkway. Okay, yeah. So I think it just got to the point where he was having to deal with government regulations and the EPA, and he said to hell with it. So ma- new materials are, are obviously some of the good things. Like Like it opened up the concept of, hey, everyone, let's try this other stuff. Let's try some EPS. What other good things came about? From the Clark phone. Well, company. I'd say one of the one of the the main bad things that came about it was the amount of people that that figured they were going to fill his shoes, right? And they were going to make millions, right? And, and there are dozens and dozens of companies, you know, throughout the world that thought they would do that. And I think the lesson here is that that um, Gordon Clark kept the prices of polyurethane foam very low, right? People used to, you know, they'd complain, they'd yeah. have gassing issues, or they'd have availability or this or that, you know, yeah. shapers are never happy with what they have. Yeah. And he built a product that delivery was fantastic, which us blanks has continued on that road, uh, on that business model. Um, you get blanks in less than a week generally, yeah. but, um, they were, they were underpriced for sure. And all these people came in. I'm, and I had people, other people in the industry showing up. This is so-and-so he's a chemist with this company and he says he can blow foam. And I heard it over and over and over, and all of those companies failed. Yeah, not an easy thing to do. Yeah, you know, is is make foam. Yeah. Um. Rusty told me a story about a guy that would just like the stories that you're telling me now. That some guy knocked on his door, another one of these fly-by-night foam guys, sat down with two components. You know, whatever the two components you need to make foam expand and create and blow foam. Put him down, mixed him up right there at his office, didn't even know what he was doing, and all of a sudden this thing just <laughs> erupted at Rusty's 
in Rusty's office and he had to kick him out of the room. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, I never had the, the pleasure of that. What about epoxy now? Are you working with epoxy at all? Yeah, quite a bit. Really? What do you think of the XTR foam, the extruded that, that Javier uses and that they use at FCD, the stuff that you can put in the water? It's waterproof, basically. That part I like a lot because yeah. if you've done EPS in, in any amount of time, the foam's definitely better now. But when I first started doing this in 2004, 2005 again, um, foam quality could be horrible. Yeah. Um, and if you got a ding, you better get out of the water immediately. Yeah. So the XTR foam definitely has no problem in water absorption at all. And I know that Javier has been really successful with it. Yeah. Um, and I personally stayed with um, EPS. Yeah. And is that just because, look, I, it's hard enough to retrofit my planer and get new tools, and this foam's a little bit different to shape and. It's, that, are those some? What are some of the hurdles yeah, that the have closed, kept you? Closed cell foam is very hard to to hand shape. Yeah, and I still use the machine for certain things, but overall, probably ninety five percent of what I make or more is all hand shape. Yeah. So there's great polyurethane foam out there. The EPS foam that is available, um, they're made off a of good off a of good plugs. Right. You know, US is is very good at it. Yeah. Um, is and U.S. the only supplier of foam? No, they, they supply it. Millennium supplies it. I mean that you use. Yeah. And Marco yeah. Is, is, of course, huge. Marco supplies many, many people. But right. um, I buy quite a bit of foam from U.S., and, and it's readily available. So yeah, yeah. Um, good, consistent foam. There are other foams, uh, the INT, which I've never used, but I've heard really good things about that, really good flex properties. Oh, really? INT yeah. has a foam blank? They have foam available. I don't know the it's details. It's the same foam that they use for their softboards? I think it is. Oh. So don't know that, that much. How would that shape? Um, I think it would probably be somewhere in between EPS and, and the the, uh, the closed cell oh. foams. Interesting. But um, I've got a little underground layer that my, uh, my glasser does all my stuff in. And uh, we've done, I mean, as you've seen, I've done the carbon boards we're on to the next step, which are uh, some different fabrics out there that are, again, really light and really strong. And, and we're doing 100% vacuum bag technology now. On EPS, what, yeah. what, what kind of fabrics? What, where, and where do you get these fabrics? Do these come from through lore or through? No, these are all. Revcam or like? All Graphite Masters. Uh-huh, Graphite Masters. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, they do the carbon tapes and everything else, and they're always constantly working with different different it's sort designs. of a wild wild west regarding how these things perform in the water right i mean you guys are literally like just going i don't know let's try one and and then you go out and see how it works we did in the past but yeah. i'd say they're pretty dialed right now right you know as far as um i mean some of my team guys that's all they'll ride yeah. um sean fowler is a local guy in ib yeah i've heard of sean what i call the eternal grom okay he, he's in in his early 40s now okay right. and still the best guy in the water by far yeah and his boards are more refined than they've ever been. Um, and these are EPS vacuum bags with carbon wraps and unique. They've got a little bit of carbon in them, but mostly they're glass. They're they're biaxial fabrics. Um, they're they're and again by by bagging them, you're getting the most efficient lamination possible. You're not having excess material. You pull the board out of the bag, and you could essentially write it if you ground off the top of the fin boxes. Right. Um, you could put fins in it and ride it. They're that flat. Right. So you're actually saving in materials. Um, very high strength 
um, ratio. Why wouldn't all boards be done this way? Is it just lack of knowledge? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, the bottom line. So in many ways, the San Diego region is still cutting edge and that there's guys like you that have the ability to, to kind of experiment and do different things with this new fabric and, and sort of you guys are sort of right, raising the bar. I would, I'd agree with that. Javier suggested that stringers are obsolete. I think he's right. Have you been doing anything with like high density foam in the middle of the board or putting carbon strips or Kevlar down the middle to strengthen the board since we don't have that wood strip in there? Well, um, we'll go over Sean's boards real quick. He, I just made him two five, two new five nines. That's kind of his go-to. Holy mackerel. Five nine and he's 40 something. Yeah. How thick are they? They're about two and a half. Good Lord. So um, they are a little bit fuller, which is kind of the general high-performance shortboard look now. They're not eggy or anything, but right. just a little wider. Right. Uh, nose and tail. Keep the curve in them. Yeah. No stringers. Um, 1.5-pound foam. Very light foam. Right. Um, carbon tape, top and bottom. And they're all... Down the middle, you mean? Down the middle, uh -huh. top and bottom. Right. And how, how wide is that tape? Um, it's probably two inches. And that's basically to, to replace the strength that the normal wood... The, the, the wood stringer would have put into it. It's a strength thing, right? It's a strength thing, but the fabrics that we're using um, also, you can think of it like this. When the board takes an impact, um, with a, well, say a stringered board takes an impact. Say you bail in front of a wave and, a, and you know, it's a hollow beach break or something, and it'll break in half or it'll, it'll, um, it'll crack. Yeah. You don't really get that with, with epoxy. It's epoxy resin doesn't have that same stress fracture look to it. When right. you do break one and you've, you've done it, yeah. it looks like you cut it in half with a skill saw. Right. It finally takes enough load and it fails. Right. So we have something now where, and again, his boards are all six ounce, but with fins in them, traction pads on them, they weigh about five and a half pounds. Wow. And they're very, very strong Yeah. and lively. Yeah. So that's why I've caught gotten kind of out of and away from the carbon so much uh -huh. i still have customers that that's all they want that they'll pay pretty much whatever they have to for a carbon glass job you mean like full black carbon surfboards? Full black carbon surfboards those sound stiff for some well reason. think of it like this though because that's that's always been the rub people are like oh they're stiff yeah well is a golf shaft stiff you know is a tennis racket stiff does it does it have you know increased memory quicker memory because that's what you're getting out of it. When you right. think about think about like an old an old stainless steel golf shaft. Yeah. You know, it's going to have some flex to it, but it's not really going to have that that performance factor you're going to get if that's a carbon shaft. Mm -hmm. You're still going to get flex with it, but the return is going to be a lot more rapid. So you're going to get a longer you're going to get a longer shot. You're going if it's a tennis racket, you're going to get a stronger serve, a stronger, you know, return. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the way that I look at it. Right. So it's not for everybody, but my customers that ride those, that's all they, they, they ride. But Sean's pretty much, I mean, he, he's like the cutting edge customer in, in, the, in the sense that he knows what he wants. He's a great surfer. He's been doing it a long time. He's like, Stu, let's think about this. And you guys together, like, this is what we've come up with. We've come up with this six ounce vacuum bag with a carbon strip down the middle, one and a half pound EPS, super light, strong, pretty much state of the art. I'd agree with that, yeah. definitely. And if somebody called you, or if I, after this conversation and I order a board, <laughs> do you direct me there, or do you go, because the boards you've made me are polys. 
Um, what I do with all my customers is, is, you know, in this case is, you know, I've known you for a long time. I know the way you surf. Yeah. So I can adapt that and I want to, and you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and the best thing that, that surfers can do is be honest with their shapers. Yeah. You know, say, well, I surf on the weekends and I'm, this is where I surf and this is what I need. I don't get out as much as I'd like to. And I'm, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, drinking a few too many beers during the week or I'm eating too much and too much pizza or whatever. So I need something more forgiving. Um, when you get that, then you can build to suit. Yeah. You know, you're still really fit. You still surf really well. You pretty much know the direction you want to go in. So it's very easy yeah. to have a meeting of the minds. Yeah. And, and, you know, interestingly, I've always just been a poly guy because that's kind of like what we all did. We all just did mm -hmm. polys. Like, I don't even, when I order a board, I don't even think, I'm just like, I just, I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't even think about my different options. Now, I recently got a board from Javier, which is one of these XTRs with the vacuum bag with no stringer. It's got a high-density middle piece of foam in it and um, and some carbon and some Kevlar, you know, and he made me the latest, greatest. And it's mm -hmm. really great. I love it. It's By the way, it's got a slight concave deck. It's a really mm -hmm. cool board. I'll show it to you. And um, But it's it's just got it's got a liveliness. It's got a springiness. I'm really excited about this vacuum-bagged, light springy vibe that, that sort of Javier sent me on. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Maybe we've discussed this already. Well, there's another way to look at it too, which is, is kind of a simple thing. And, and Dan Mann and I kind of came up with this, um, when we started doing the, the epoxies and especially the carbons, you, you take a board and you put it under your arm and you smack it, you know, you get a brand new board, a brand new poly, you know, put it under your arm and hit it with your other hand. That board has a ping. It yeah. has a resonance. So, Back in the you know earlier days of, of lightweight poly boards, you know even back into the to the early '80s, you know when we were riding performance tri fins, you get a board, or especially a longboard, because you can relate to that because you used to ride longboards. Yeah. You get a longboard, you know John Keys makes you one, and it's insane. Yeah. And you just want to ride that thing every single day. Yeah. In everything, you want to ride it in two foot Cardiff, and you want to ride it at five foot beach break. Yeah. And within four to six months, you that board is now dead. Yes. You know, and if you were to smack it, it's going to sound like a, a kitchen sponge. Right. And you've ridden the life out of that board. And that's where we get back to that ping. You smack a board, especially an epoxy, and it has that resonance, that ping, that vibration. Yeah. Um, and that's the liveliness in that board. Yeah. And it's a it's something that people might not think about, yeah. but it's a, it's a factor that you know, Dan and I, because we're both kind of space cadets, we live off of that. Right. So so the newer technologies, the newer phones, the, the newer ways that we're kind of moving, the direction that we're moving in, um, these boards basically just keep their liveliness. Quite a bit. Yeah. I, I honestly feel that um, polyurethane foam, it's been around forever, and it's it's okay. It's pretty good. It's not the best thing to make surfboards out of. Yeah. Um, if you want to look down the green road, you can you can ride an EPS board into the ground and you can recycle that EPS foam. Yeah. It's used in, in gardening industries. It's, you, you can reformulate it again into something else. Right. Um, polyurethane foam goes in the, it goes in the dump. Yeah. And, and my biggest complaint with it is the way that professional surfers ride their boards. Um, and that was something I saw when I worked with JS, there'd be contests here. They, you'd have the lowers pro contests. And at the time, you had 
you had um, Parco and you had Ace Buck and, and maybe Bruce Irons and on and on. Their boards were, were shipped from Australia, usually about 20 boards at a time. So 20 boards for a contest, if you want to think about that. Yeah. And that goes across, you know, all the top 20 plus guys. Right. They're getting that amount of boards for every contest there is. Yeah. And they ride them. And a, a lot of times they'll take a board and they'll put it under their arm and go, nah. Even Jason did that. And I'm like, that's that's BS. Yeah. You can't tell until you put your feet on that board what it's going to feel like. Right. The other th- but what it gets to here is those boards generally are single four ounce top and bottom. Even their Hawaii boards are pretty much glass like that. Yeah. So you see guys that are regularly creasing boards in heats. They're yeah. regularly breaking boards. And it's like I talked to Jason about it. And he goes, that's just the price of, of dealing with light performance boards. And I I definitely disagree with that. And that's where the the EPS technologies, the epoxy resins, the better cloths that we're using, the carbon tapes come in. You're building a better product. It's going to last longer. And surfboards aren't cheap, nor should they be. Yeah. But they shouldn't be disposable. Right. You know, there's to me, there's nothing worse or would be worse than making someone the best board they've ever had. And they take it out and break it yeah. right away. That's a shame. You know, which, of course, the warranty ends when you walk out the door. (laughs) (laughs) Caveat. (laughs) Speaking of um, landfills, what do you think about Costco surfboards, wave storms, this whole wave storm thing? What are your thoughts on that? Um, Here's my theory, which I I firmly believe in. I think that, again, we touched on it. Surfing's very popular. Um, It's done nothing but get bigger. And I think that Surfing at that level, um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It doesn't affect me or my business one bit. But uh, a novice surfer to intermediate, say, going to Costco, it's 100 bucks for a board. They buy that board, and surfing has become another activity. Yeah, It's not – you're not surf-stoked like we were when we were kids. Right. Where it was like we – all we thought about was how to, how to get in the water, how to surf. You know, I know, as, I know as a kid, I had boards all over the place. Yeah. And when I do poorly in school, my parents would, you're on restriction. You're not going surfing. We're going to keep your board locked up in the closet. Knock yourself out because I got more all over town. <laughs> I don't see that. I see this as like, okay, we're going to go meet at La Jolla Shores at 7 in the morning, and we're going to go surf for an hour. Then we're going to go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. And then maybe we'll go rock climb in the afternoon. And then we'll go do something else. Are you suggesting that they wouldn't own a surfboard if it weren't for the Costco board? No, I think it's just it doesn't matter. They don't see the difference in it. But does it affect you and me and Craig Hollingsworth and all the guys that are trying to make a living shaping surf? I don't think so. And again, because it's an activity, they're not really surfers. Right. So you don't see a conversion where they do it for six months and then realize, you know what, it's time to get on a real surfboard because... I'm not only I'm no longer aspirational now I'm I'm into it very rarely. Yeah. Hmm. And that's just that's that's my personal opinion but that's what I experience. Um I don't have I don't have a customer that says, "Well, I got a soft top and I'm coming in to get one." Yeah, I don't you think know, it happens. Real one. I don't think there's any conversion. The the maybe the scarier thing is these really red hot surfers that are just world-class phenomenons um riding softboards now. Do you think that's a problem for the industry, for the surfboard building um, industry? No, not necessarily. I mean, you you know, the first name that comes to, to mind is Jamie O'Brien. Right. And he's a he's a freak show. 
He's yeah. a fantastic surfer, fantastic athlete, and I think that he needs that challenge. Yeah. You know, he if he wants to paddle out a back door on a nine foot sponge and stand up on another six footer that he has under his arm, then have at it. Yeah. So you don't think that there's like you're not seeing like guys like Sean Fowler or whoever, like good surfers that are now kind of I don't want to say regressing, but going to the soft board and riding it on a pretty regular basis and being okay with it. Do you no, it's not I, a concern for you. In Sean's case, I wouldn't allow it. Well, have, I mean, have him as an example. I mean, yeah. as an example, like just no. like a like a guy like me. Like if you saw me on a, I'd I'd have to do an intervention with you. If thank I saw you. That. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We bring you aside and set Good. you down. Right. You know, start off the lessons again. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <clears throat> I've been thinking about trying to honor glassers and the other guys in the industry. You know, I wonder if you have any thoughts about. Who would be a good guy to honor, and how would I go about honoring the guys like the Sanders and the Glassers and the? Well, I don't think you could you could necessarily pick anybody out because. What about Jack Reeves? Well, Jack Reeves is awesome. Would he be the one that? But does your average surfer know who he is? Well, we're going to tell him. That's that's a good thing. I think if you took guys like him and and you know Alex Villalobos and. Yeah. And I mean, Gary Stuber, Gary Stuber, Russell Imlay, Russell's glass, my boards, you know, since Canyon days. Right. And those guys, they're covered in, in toxic crap yeah. all day long. And they really don't get the consideration that they deserve. Yeah. Um, Sanders, Sanders are, are covered in fiberglass dust and probably the worst job, right? I, I would say probably the worst. I think the worst job is a polisher. Oh, because you're the last one to touch that board, and and polishing surfboards kind of went out of favor. But you know all the Gucci boards that myself and some other people make—that's the final thing. Right. You're working with a very small amount of resin, yeah. Um, and you're only as good as as what the glosser has given you. So you can't have someone just throwing resin on a board. They have to know what they're doing, right? And then you have to to sand that thing out. And again, you you barely have any material to work with, and you yeah. can't burn through it. And you can't heat it up. Wow. So people don't think about that. They yeah. just think, oh, this is shiny. Right. But there's a tremendous amount there's, of work that there's goes There's pressure. Out. There's a lot yeah. more pressure. At least the sander, he just goes, here you go. And, yeah. But, you know, Sanders, um, Wade Largent, sanded all my boards a diamond. And he still works. He works at Moonlight. He works down at, at Josh Hall's place at Shoreline. Yeah. And he's insane. Yeah. Really good. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to be able to honor these guys, you know? I've been thinking about Jack Reeves and how to honor Jack Reeves, and maybe I, I send a, you know, a message out to these guys that you just mentioned, and I say, hey, we're honoring Jack Reeves. Make a board that Jack would be proud of, and I don't even mm-hmm. know what that means to them. They're like, okay, cut laps. What does that like? You know, like Jack would have to give them some insight into what he's expecting. I guess. Yeah, I, I imagine you're right. Yeah. It it gets more difficult, um, but I think it's important. Yeah. Um, because it's not, I'm just shaping it, you know, and I've got to, I've got to be the good thing about the way that I grew up shaping and making surfboards was, um, when I really got into my own, I was shaping out a diamond and the next guy to touch my board was a laminator and then the hot coat and fin guy and the sander. And at that time, which was in the nineties, if I screwed something up, if I had a, a fin mark that was wrong, I would get nailed for it. You know, it was as close to like hazing as you're going to get. Right. Um, and again, that's how you learn the best, you know, have, have thicker skin and listen 
Yeah. You know, don't just show up. And these days it's, it's a little bit sad in that you don't see people that want to get in the resin side of the business. Yeah. They don't want to be an airbrusher. Their airbrusher is the most underappreciated part of our business. Jeff Myers just shed a tear. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you, th when you, I mean, look at, look at how many airbrushers we have in San Diego. Not very many. You got Barry Snyder up in Oceanside. You've got, um, you've got Peter St. Pierre, who's fantastic. Yeah. You got Jeffrey yeah. and you got Tom Curtis. Yeah. And that's about it. Wow. You know, over quite a, quite a bit of territory. Yeah. So I don't see younger guys getting into that. I, I shouldn't forget Seth Ospreo either, though, because, you know, he's a legend in painting. Exactly right. Yeah. But, again, it's, it's like you don't see people saying, I want to do this or I want to. I guess the difference is when I got into it, you had to start at the bottom. Yeah. And these days, if you want to shortcut it, as you know, you can learn a, you can learn a CAD program yep. and you can learn to design a surfboard on a computer and you can, with a little bit of practice, make something that's passable, and then you're a surfboard guy. And I really don't appreciate that at all. And it's interesting. Why is it that you don't appreciate it? I mean, you sort of mentioned this, but because but, the devil's advocate in me, Stu, wants to say, what's wrong with that, Stu? It's 2018. That's just the way it is, dude. Don't say well, I'm so old and salty. You could say I'm old and salty. And, <laughs> I, and I, couldn't, I couldn't disagree with you, but I think that, that selfishly, if you ask people that, that, you know, you know, and deal of deal with say, you know, Wayne rich, I think he'd probably have the same opinion. that oh, I, I, would. I would. I know. He would. And I'm just playing devil's advocate. Oh, I've I agree got with no you. problem with it at all. Yeah. But I think you need, what it does is by learning to use tools. Exactly. By learning to use hand tools. The first boards I shaped as a kid, I didn't have a planer. You know, well, it's, it's kind of like this. It's like, look, okay, you want to call yourself a surfboard builder, then you have to build the entire surfboard. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you want to be a guitar builder, you can't just do the whole, cut the hole, you know, or yeah. whatever, you know, whatever, yep. you know, and be, call yourself. You got to be able to know how to do the whole thing. You got to fit the neck. You got to wind the strings. I'm talking everything. And once you do that, then you can specialize in sanding mm -hmm. or shaping or Jack Jensen, you're making fins, whatever it is, you know, maybe that's the best way to put it. I, I just think you get a better appreciation and understanding about what you're making. Yeah. And again, you know, cause guys, old dinosaurs like me, we know how to do the whole thing. Yeah. Don't think, want to anymore, but, well, but it can. was important that you did, yeah. you know, like you wouldn't be where you're at without. Oh, not that. at all. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think what we're getting at here Yeah, is that you feel like kid, you're missing it. Like you're not getting it, you know? Yeah. You got the business card, but you don't got the business. Or you know how to sign your name on foam. Wow. That's even worse. That is. <laughs> this year, we're honoring Wayne Lynch in the awesome. Icons of Foam, tribute to the Masters. Uh, any thoughts on Wayne Lynch? Or? Um, Quite a few. Yeah. Um, you I, I, you, you hear. He's foot like you. Yeah. He rips like you. He surfs the proper way. Yes. Um, he, uh, I got to, to deal with Wayne through Joel. Oh, cool. And. Joel, when I was shaping at Rusty's, I was actually in one of Rusty's buildings. They moved me up there um, out of Diamond. Yeah. And I was shaping next to Bill Johnson. And Joel shows up with Wayne Lynch. Yeah. And a blank. He goes, we're, we're going we're gonna to do a morning of the earth board. Cool. So right there and then, that's what we did. And that was pretty much the best experience of my life. That and, and working with AB. Yeah. I mean, here's a living legend. Yeah. You know, and the funny part was, so... 
we're you know we're interacting talking about it and wayne's like well, i don't even know why you guys want to build this it's a piece of junk <laughs> you know and of course joel's like all about it oh, yeah. but to have that experience yeah and andrew kidman was there and has pictures that I've, I've yet to see but i want those pictures yeah i'd like to see him too actually but a guy you know a guy like wayne you know from a kid i was influenced by him and you know you get back through the the early professional days where he won the Coke contest. I think it was against Larry Blair. Yeah. You know, in like spinning left barrels. Yeah. And then the next year he got second, barely missing um, first place. And it's it was a controversial call, I think. But I was lucky enough to have lunch with him the other day. Did you know that um, he believes that the very first custom board he had, and he's not sure, and he's very particular about making sure that you understand that if he's not sure, he doesn't want to spread a rumor that takes off like wildfire. But he's fairly confident that Neil Purchase Sr. was the first guy who made him a custom surfboard. That he went to McTavish's Keo shop in Sydney and Manly or wherever it was and and saw all the beautiful V-bottom Keos. And, and Bob was like, yeah, we're making you a board, Wayne, um, but I'm busy surfing. And so Bob McTavish went surfing. A few weeks later, this board arrives in Victoria, and it doesn't have the crazy V. It's got hardly any V in it. And Wayne's looking at it like, well, this isn't what I wanted. And it ends up it was the best thing ever that it, because it was actually rideable. It didn't mm -hmm. have that too much of that hideous V in it. And he thinks it might have been Neil Purchase Sr., sort of an interesting anecdote. Well, it, that brings up another point that I think is equally as important when it comes to shaping surfboards is not only be honest with yourself, and as I said earlier, I like to take things out and try different things. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you'll learn more from your mistakes than you will your successes. Yeah. Um, I built a board at Rusty's that was um, it was a Twinser. And I put the fins in the wrong place. Just one of those days. Yeah. And I think I, I, think I went to lunch and might have had a couple beers with lunch and marked them, you know, in the wrong place. They were too far up. Right. So the board's getting glassed and we're going to go to, we're doing Tabarua in the next week and that board's going there. And the guy I made it for is like, are these fins right? I'm like, no, they're glassed on. <laughs> oh. So I go, okay, let's put a fin box in it and see how it goes. So is this, this, C5 this was the precursor to the C5. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Which some people might not want to know that, but oh. I happen to have that board in my garage. Oh, and how does it go? Um, it goes really well. I oh. had a, a couple guys that worked for Qualcomm during my rusty years that bought all my trade-ins. And I had a board allowance there so I could go through a lot of surfboards, and I did. Yeah. So these guys showed up with a computer printout of all the boards they had for me with all the numbers on them all my coded numbers on the stringer. Right. They didn't necessarily equate into inches or metrics. Right. But I knew what they were. Right. And so they, this one, one of the guys inherited this board and he came in to me and he, it's all brown now and he'd ridden it into the ground. And he said, well, can you make me another one? And I said, do you have that board? He goes, oh yeah. I said, I'll make you a brand new one. I want that board. Right. So that's in the collection. Oh, cool. Very cool. So yeah, you learn just as much, if not more, off your mistakes. Yeah. And sometimes you stumble onto things that, you know, are magic. Yeah. Well, Stu Kenson, we've said a lot. We've said it all, frankly. Is there anything that we're missing here, bud? Not that I could think of. Thanks for uh, always having time. me. Appreciate yeah. it. You bet. It was a pleasure having you. Now, 
We're going to have to turn this off and order a surfboard. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Stu. Until You're next welcome. time. Adios. And don't forget to support our sponsor, Ride List app. Download the app right now. Get it.